Roll Podcast. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries, all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Okay, so today Adam and I get into a few documentaries, Kiss the Ground and My Octopus Teacher. We discuss the quickly metastasizing problem of plastic ending up in our oceans and waterways. And of course, we answer a bunch of listener questions. We answer a question on group training in the era of COVID, how to be an effective advocate for healthy lifestyle change, and also a question on the problematic aspects of American exceptionalism, as well as several other topics. So with that, I give you me, Adam, and roll on. Enjoy. All right, everybody, we're back. Welcome or welcome back to another hotly anticipated edition of Roll On. Roll On. Roll On. Give me your BBC One introduction again. This is BBC Radio One. There we go. I like that. Can you do the whole podcast in that <laughs> I, accent? I, I cannot. <laughs> I'm good at that. just that. Otherwise, it gets really weird. 
Really quick, if you're joining us on YouTube today, make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. I'm told that that's effective in building our subscriber base. Yes. Uh, also, apparently there's a little bell, a little notification bell. And if you click that, you will be alerted every time we post a new video. So. And you can trick YouTube into that. sending you good stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. We're all here to take control of the algorithm, are we not? <laughs> yes. And I'm joined today, of course, by my hype man, bestie, journeyman journalist, adventurer, environmentalist, author, David Goggins, can't hurt me, co-author, mm. Adam Skolnick. How you doing, man? Good, man. How are you? It's Swim good to be run here. enthusiast. Swim run devotee. Uh-huh. Yeah. Backburnered On a little shelf. bit with a new baby at home. Yeah. New baby. The new baby, new baby life is real, man. He's How's the sleep? Inter intermittent. Yeah. <laughs> If I get three straight hours, that's amazing. Too bad uh, the health benefits of, of intermittent sleeping don't match the health benefits of intermittent fasting. Right, which I'm not doing More either. people would have babies. If, 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 what do you mean? <laughs> if intermittent sleeping? Well, you know how intermittent oh, fasting up, is now like a big thing. Sex. Everyone's yeah. like, you gotta intermittent fast. But if it was intermittent sleeping, that, oh, was, they'd the, have that babies. was the craze, right. this would be a way to They'd have, have babies more to have that. Sleep. Yeah, exactly. I thought you meant it would be like you'd you wouldn't you'd wake up to have the sex opposed to I kind of <laughs> want to, but I'm not going to go to the trouble. I thought that's what you Maybe meant. Maybe that would happen too. I don't know. <laughs> um, what we do here on the roll on is yeah. we invest a little bit of time in what we call the big story. We try to throw a teachable moment or two at you. We do a little show and tell. We take mm. questions from listeners on our yes. Facebook group. If you would like your question considered for us to contemplate and talk about. You can leave us a voicemail at 424-235-4626. Quickly becoming a new addition to the format is our fitness check-in. Yeah. How's your fitness check-in? You went, you swam Dude, around the reef the other day. I did. I, I, I'll say two parts. One is, I'm, that was great. I mean, to be able to get back to the reef and to see the, and it was it was 40 foot viz, uh, at least. It was really one of the more beautiful days of the year. Rays, tons of fish that like new fish had hatched. So there was like baby fish everywhere, like explosions of baby fish. It was beautiful. Mm. But, you know, to be honest, like this zone two stuff, I feel like it's making me less fit. Like I feel I'm slower and more breath out of breath, but uh -huh. maybe it's the sleep deprivation. Well, I don't know. there's a couple things with yeah. zone two. First is, and I've said this before, it's a it's a long game, right? So patience is key. But the other aspect of that is consistency. It only works when you're plying it consistently day in and day out. So if you're if you're doing intermittent zone two, yeah. you're probably not reaping the benefits and perhaps your fitness has slipped. Okay. Um, because that's really how you make the gains is when you're just like showing up day in, day out, day in, day out and being patient. Like an hour a day in zone two on a run? Yeah, it's gonna be different for, for everybody. But if you're doing zone two twice a week and not doing anything else, yeah. Your fitness, to to Your fitness is gonna Dude, slip. Your fitness is gonna slip. Twice a week but is good for me right look, now. You've got a baby, yeah. and you know everything has a season. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, that's cool that you got out on the reef. Uh, what what I think a lot of people don't realize is the best. I think the best time of year in Los Angeles is September and October. Oh yeah, the weather's incredible. The water's warm. Oh yeah. It's really. It great. was like sixty-eight degree water and and clear, and then October, November is the best visibility on on the California coast. Mm. Anyway, 
I, I think October is the best month in almost every country. Like October and May are the, like if you ever, when we can ever travel again, October and May, that's when you should travel. Well, it depends on where you're going. Yeah. Right. Well, you, you but October one. in Los Angeles is very much a, an extended summer. I mean, it the is. days are shorter, but the climate is super nice. It's and, so nice. And yeah, temperate. You're right. Um, I haven't swum around the reef in quite some time, but I did go on a bike ride with my buddy, Mark Hancock the other day. Mark is the guy that I did the Catalina uh, swim run with. Oh, you yeah. met him, remember? Yes. Uh, he's Greg Renfrew's husband. Greg's uh, a past podcast guest. She's the founder and CEO of Beauty Counter. And Mark is super fit, like an incredible athlete. Um, and I love doing some training with him. And when we were preparing for the Catalina race, I took him down to do that swim. And then we were running all over the bluffs because that's the one place in our kind of general region where you can approximate some kind of authentic swim run experience mm -hmm. because it's hilly. Like most of the beaches around here, everything's too flat, right? right? Um, but that's one place where you can climb those trails and yeah. get some elevation and stuff like that. But he like was sort of freaking out when we went around the reef at, is that, what do you call that? It's it's on the way to Little Doom, but yeah, what is well, that it's, point it's called? Point, it's, it's Point Doom, that is so point you could call doom. it Big Doom. Like a lot right. of people call it Big Doom. And then that cove, that beach there is Big Doom and Little Doom is on the other side of the smaller point. It's very exposed. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of seals. There's a lot yeah. of marine life. Sea lions. And sea lions. Yeah. And there's, there's uh, the, the general consensus is this is a shark feeding ground. Yes. Right. <laughs> and so. And it's true. It is. I've done that swim a ton of times. <laughs> I've done it with you. Uh, it is a little bit freaky and treacherous yes. when you're out there because you definitely have a sense that you are exposed and in, in the wild. Yes. Although I've never seen anything that scared me. You're, no. you're on high alert for sure. Yeah. And Mark, since that experience, has told some friends that he swam around. <laughs> the big doom point. Yeah. And he told me that like all his friends are like, I can't believe you did that. Like yeah. you're, you're like risking your life. Like that's super sketchy to do that. And we do and you've it. Done, how many times have you done it? I mean, I moved out there to do it like five times a week. I did, I, you know, like <laughs> I've got a buddy who's still out there like four or five times a week uh -huh. and when he's not working, he's in production. Do you see so. sharks ever? We've never seen, uh, we've seen a blue shark. We've seen Mola Mola. There was a turtle sighting not too long ago. You know, I think that, so the, in terms of shark attacks, we see seals, uh, sea lions that have been washed up with big bites out of them. I have a friend who surfs a big doom sometimes. And he said he, he literally was surfing when he saw a great white eating a whale calf. Oh my God. Um, and he just kept surfing because he's like, well, he's got food, so it's all good. Um, <laughs> Luckily. One time we, we finished our swim and we came out on the staircase and over, overlooking the bluffs. It was a beautiful day and we were just basking in, you know, in raw nature and thinking, wow, what a wonderful day. Isn't it beautiful out there? It was clear and the blue water's glittering with sunlight. And all of a sudden we see a white shark just breach and flop down <laughs> right where we'd been. Uh -huh. <laughs> and we just looked at each other and said nothing and just moved along. Wow. Um, but no, we've never seen a white shark. I think we will at some point. I mean, mm. you know, the odds are eventually you might. Um, but uh I'm not, you know, I used to be scared about it. I used to, sometimes when I'm out there alone, you might still feel it. Um, like 
like the darkness approaching. Yeah. It's in your brain. The but, water's quite clear out there, but on murky days, that's where it gets scary yeah. because you can't see, you know, and there's yeah. a sense of powerlessness. The murky days are is when you get scared, but, um, and there's powerlessness. You are in the food chain, but most of the, the attacks, I mean, I, I look at anytime there's an attack. First of all, we don't really have them too often. I mean, I, I can't remember last time one was publicized in mm. our area. And the ones that were, were kayak fishermen and they got, nobody died. Uh, there was a guy who got bit in Manhattan Beach by a, a juvenile white shark, not too long ago, an open water swimmer. And that was because he'd been uh, going after the bait of the pier fishermen. Mm. So it's, it tends to be, you know, the, the, the free divers that get hit or the open water swimmers that get hit, it can be bad, like around here anyway. It can be bad luck, but often it's, it's related to fishing and we're not doing that. And yeah, we're around their, their food, it's true. Um, they are ping, pinging off those buoys. Some of those buoys have like a radio kind of receptor and, and any white sharks that have been tagged do ping those buoys. Uh-huh. And so there are, they do hear if, if it comes within a quarter mile or a half mile of the buoy, they, they ping. So yes, it happens. Wow. Um, but you know, it's funny, Sunset Point in, like in the bay is like uh, within a mile of Sunset Point, there is a shark nursery, a white shark nursery that's known. Mm. So that's actually swimming to Mescal, where I've been swimming lately for swim run training is I think is much more in terms of white sharks. We've seen one breach there too. Wow, there's that's, a lot more people more. in the water. And there's in more that people area, in the water. For sure. I, I think, you know, we're all scared because of nobody wants to die that way, but, uh, and because of jaws and all that. But in reality, I think it's, you know, you have better chance of getting struck by lightning than well, getting hit we, by a shark. Well, we kill a hundred million sharks a year. Yeah. A hundred million crazy. we kill. And there are five people who die by shark attacks every year. Yeah, there you which go. Which is crazy. Do you know uh, Michael Muller? Yeah. So I had him on the podcast. Uh, I have his a book. I have ago. his amazing his shark, big shark book. book. Yeah. yeah, it's incredible. He yeah. gave me a copy of that book. He did the podcast recently. That's gonna go up in a couple of weeks. But we spent the gravamen of that conversation talking about his adventures, photographing sharks and and swimming out of the cage with sharks. And yeah. That has really reframed how I think about these creatures. Yes. Um, it's an amazing podcast. I can't wait to share it. I that can't, I can't wait to listen. I think he posted on his uh, Instagram not too long ago, maybe it was like a year ago, about like if people knew how close sharks really came to them in the water, even just around here, like nobody would be swimming <laughs> in the ocean. Yeah. Uh, some, some sort of like hint like that, but mm-hmm. he's not afraid of them. I, I feel the same way. I feel like we might see one. The thing to do if you're out in deeper water and you see one is to group up like in a knot and everyone face outward. And to kind of make you like you know make yourself bigger uh-huh. and um, not splash around or or you know as hard as that might. Well, be. the other thing he said was that you sw- you should swim towards them. Yeah, right. Which All the goes stuff. against every in- instinct that you're going to have. Yeah. yeah, but because they are the apex predator or the top of the food chain, they're not used to that. So. Yeah. In their brain, they're thinking, oh, this is a predator and they will turn off. Now that's all this said, there are parts of the world where shark attacks are more common, North Carolina, Florida, Australia, I'm, I'm even Hawaii. I'm not minimizing the fear of sharks or Martha's saying- Martha's Vineyard I'm, yeah, from I'm Jaws. Not, I'm like, exactly. <laughs> I'm not like saying I'm this big, brave guy, but where we are, it just the history of it, it's, 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 uh, it's pretty far down what could go wrong. Famous last words. Yeah, but right. hey, if it happens. No, I, I think that our plan, we, we do talk about it. If we see a shark out here, what to do? And we always say, 
calm, try to enjoy it and then swim in as soon as you can. <laughs> uh-huh. That that's that'll all go out the window the moment that happens, I would suspect. I, I would think so. Um all right. We're still on the fitness check-in, are we not? I think so. So you I got I got vegan gains. I got yeah, I got to check in on the swole update. Yeah. So the strength training is ongoing as I mentioned the last time we got together. I've been going to this gym where they set stuff up outside and mm. I wear a mask and you know, we social distance and there's only a couple of people there, but I've been really consistent with it and it's been fun. Like my body has definitely changed. Like I'm back to I was never like a gym rat and I've never been that strong in the gym. I've never been somebody who threw big weights around or anything like that. Even when I was swimming and we were doing heavy weights three times a week, I was like, okay, you know, the but I, I was days, never like, mean? yeah, like way back then. But my goal was to be able to lift the, the kind of weight that I could lift in college when I was swim training mm-hmm. at Stanford. And I thought it would take me at least until November to get there, but I'm already there, which wow. is great. And I did it by just like literally like, the first couple of weeks I would only go for like 20 minutes then 30 minutes. And now I'm up to like an hour and a half and I'm feeling like different in my body. Like I have more control and I definitely have bulked up a little bit, not too much, um, but it's interesting and unfamiliar in contrast to when you're really focused on endurance mm-hmm. and you're trying to get as lean as possible and it's all about power to weight, like letting go of that and trying something different um, has been cool. And like I said, at the outset of the podcast, like everything has a season, right? So right now, like this is the season that I'm focused on and it's cool. You know, I'm somebody who was really fit in college and then I got fat and then I lost a bunch of weight and then I got fit and then I got crazy skinny, like in 2011 when I did Ultraman that year, I was like down to 158. Like mm. I was I was like too lean. And now to be able to kind of bulk up a little bit and get strong has been a cool experience for a variety of reasons. Not the least of which is to say, as somebody who's been vegan for 13, coming on 14 years at this point, like I can still put on mass and I can still make gains in the gym without any animal products in my diet. And I think it speaks to this counter argument that you hear a lot from the peanut gallery when an athlete goes plant-based and then performs well, the the kind of retort that you hear is, well, he, he or she made all their gains when they were eating animal products and they're just riding on the coattails of that. But in truth, I've had so many permutations in my fitness journey and I've been vegan for so long to go from like really skinny where my arms were like toothpicks and I could swim all day, but not with much power to now having you know some heft on me and be able to kind of pack that back on has been cool. So awesome. part of the, part, you know, in terms of like the storytelling aspect of it, like, hey, you know, at, at 54, I can get strong again after being vegan for this long and being at my age and that feels good. So more more to be revealed. Not that like, I'm not holding myself out as some kind of, you know, like, you know, this is a process. Like I'm not like insanely fit or anything like that. I'm just trying something different and new. I think it's great. I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for weights, especially to water sports. I mean, I don't know about um, endurance sports as much. You would know more than me, but I would imagine like getting, having strength can only help you, right? Right, yeah. but at, at some point it becomes diminishing returns right, right, depending right. upon what you're trying to do. Like 
when I got crazy skinny, like I said, I could open water swim for hours mm-hmm. and not get tired. And you don't build up any lactic acid because no. your muscles are so reduced. Like now, if I was to go out and swim, I'm strong and I'm sure I'd be able to you know, have more force in each pull, but I'm not gonna be able to do a 10 kilometer swim mm-hmm. the way that I could when I was training in a different way. So there's just trade-offs with that. It's always trade-offs. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh... Well, that's cool. It's a good journey. I, I, that's one thing I've been missing since uh, COVID is I used to go to this um, high-intensity interval training gym mm. in Santa Monica, Circuit Works, and really it was an integral part of what we, would, we were doing, my wife and I. It was like I was doing that, I was swimming, and I was running uh, more and more off the treadmill, but like I'd had the foot problems and the treadmills where I was able to get back on it in these, in these intervals and, uh, haven't had that. So I started doing more distance running, which got my running a lot better and got my swim runs better. And now I'm coming back to this. I'm like, wow, I really missed the, the strength. Cause I have lost weight yeah. and strength. And, uh, so I might start to do some of that in a, in a park with one of those trainers and like right. a socially distance way. He's like starting to meet people. In, the, mm. in a park, so I might be one of those guys on, in a park. Yeah, you see those guys. You see them around the park. And I'll be a, yeah. a, a yoga mat they, park they, guy. They, you know, pop the hatch yeah. on the back of their car, and it's just filled with fitness equipment. Yeah, that's him. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm the guy that comes in. <laughs> right. And please don't watch because yeah. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not an attractive runner. Well, there used to be. I don't know what's going on now, but yeah. close to where you live. Uh, at the oh, yeah, Santa the Monica stairs, stairs yeah. right? So yeah. at the top of the stairs, there's a little grassy area and there would always be those guys there like running fitness classes, but right. they closed the but stairs because, because they of COVID. the stairs, right? right. So, so you, the stairs are part of that workout. The stairs were the main part of the workout. Mm. And then when the stairs got closed, people still came and started working out there. I don't understand <laughs> the appeal. Like uh-huh. the medians aren't, it's not a park. It's like a little median strip. Mm. People would like sunbathe at the median. They would like right. have picnics. I'm like- it's, so that's still going on? I haven't oh, yeah. been by there in oh, a yeah. while. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's every, every Every day. Um, all right, shifting gears. Yeah. So I don't know about you, but the Social Dilemma documentary hasn't yeah. left me. Like it kind of lives in my unconscious mind. Mm. And it has changed, altered my relationship with, with social media. I've kind of really pulled back. And one of the things I've been thinking about, and this is all about me, like I've been thinking about turning off the comments on YouTube. Okay. In part because of that documentary, but also because I found myself unable to stop checking them. Really? And I kind of scroll through them and look, a lot of there's a lot of people there who say nice things or offer constructive criticism or feedback and I'm all about that. That's totally fine. But it's also like a complete shit show. Yeah. And I question like all right, well, what is the purpose of these comment sections. If it's to create a place for healthy debate and conversation, that's one thing. But if it becomes a breeding ground for bot manipulation and all kinds of half-baked strange theories or just ad hominem attacks on on either the guest or myself, mm. what what are we doing here? You know what I mean? Well, isn't it? And I thought, it's, well, it's, what if I turn these off? Does that then create the argument like, oh, he doesn't want to hear feedback, right. or you know, I don't, I don't know. But I thought as an experiment, I might try to turn them off and see what happens. Why not? <laughs> I mean, is anything productive coming out of these? 
I learned long ago, don't read the comments. Right. I mean, when you, yeah. when you write stories for these publications that have the big, uh, you know, and you have, you have that, you have a huge subscriber base and listenership. And, and so you're going to get that same kind of blowback and, and often it becomes people, personal gripes or, uh, or, you know, a take on your story that you know they didn't jive with. It's it's almost always negative because it's the same thing. It's not about social connection as you'd want it to be a place for a forum for constructive criticism and connection and discussion. But really, it's about engagement, and engagement can cut negative more often right. than positive, right? Because the way the internet works, it's like yeah. you know, even even when you text your friend, if you text them kind of something, it can be misperceived. So imagine that on a comment section when they're not your friends and uh-huh. you know, like, who knows? I'm you don't sure there's- You know who these people are. You don't right. know if they're real people. Right. Um, and, and really it's just about my relationship yeah. to it. Like, I just need to not look at that because I yes. don't want to be influenced one way or the other. I want to be able to speak freely and share my heart and not be thinking if I say that, somebody's going to comment this. Like yeah. it lives in my- it, you know, it lives in my awareness and I don't like that. But no. I think what I'm gonna do is just stop reading them and try that. But I, it's like that addictive thing. Like I have to, like I wanna gauge the temperature of how this particular conversation lands with people. Yeah, right. So then I find myself checking it and then I'm like, why did, especially like at night, like terrible idea. Oh my God, you know? <laughs> right before bed. And then I think, well, if I'm creating, like by virtue of publishing a video and mm. putting it on YouTube, and allowing that comment section to be open, am I participating or contributing to some kind of manipulation that occurs there by you know forces that don't have people's best interests at heart? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the idea of YouTube is the force has only one interest at heart, and that's continued engagement, right? So it's not like it's some. That's the thing about social dilemma. It's not like even even the people that we might say, how dare they create these things and let them run rampant and have no per, no responsibility over them and all they're just cashing in. Really, they didn't mean to create this this problem. Mm-hmm. They were looking at the positives, like you were saying, like social discussion, social connection. That's what their goal was, you know, and make money, of course. And and it just turns out engagement trumps everything. And so mm-hmm. um that's the deal. I mean I think you know, you don't have that problem with your Twitter mentions where where people are negative like that. I mean, a little bit, but it's easy. It's it's not as much. Yeah, because I think you've, in a way, just who you are and the stuff you cover, and the guests you have on, and the people that listen. It's a nurturing place. Like yeah, you created actually look, one of the more nurturing that, communities. There's plenty of people who have but, but, problems. But the YouTube. But the point is, yeah. is the YouTube videos that are posting are going to other people that aren't the listener base from the podcast. Right, that's true. They're finding you yeah, on yeah, YouTube, yeah, yeah. and so I think, and they're getting served. Your right. Stuff. It's a different it's thing different. because yeah. yeah, they're getting served up, and they don't have any background or familiarity with who I am and what I do. Exactly. So it's coming at them completely sideways and out of the blue. And so they're like, who's this idiot? (laughs) I mean, that's fine, whatever. All right, (laughs) you know, I guess what I'm gonna do is just commit to not looking at it. You commit to not reading the comments. I mean, it's it's one thing in the Facebook group, which you might wanna check in on. Well, that's different because that's a, a, you know. It's curated. Yeah, it's curated. That community is coming there for a reason. So it's different. Yeah, I agree. The main thing that I wanna talk about today, kind of the um, big story 
aspect of this podcast episode is to talk about this new documentary called Kiss the Ground. Mm. It's on Netflix. I'm sure many of you have seen it at this point. It just premiered the other day. Um, it's directed by Joshua Tickle and Rebecca Harrell Tickle, who are environmental filmmakers. It's narrated by Woody Harrelson. Woody! What's not to love about Woody? He's the Come best. Woody, know. Tom Brady, it's great. Come on. Um, yeah, there's a lot of celebrity cameos <laughs> in this. Jason Mraz and we got Giselle and yeah. my boy, Tom Brady. <laughs> love Tom Brady. <laughs> Wait, do you know him? No. He follows me on Instagram, <laughs> he, though. Yeah, he's, last he's all about lifestyle. Never, no, I haven't met Healthy him. Lifestyle. I don't know him. Um, Of course. He's gotta be in this chair one day. Got to make that happen. Yeah, we got to get If anybody him on knows there. Tom Brady, yeah. let's make that happen. In any event- You looks great um, on there, Tom. There's a lot of good about this movie. Yeah. Um, and it, it essentially posits that we can not only stave off climate change, but we can actually significantly draw down carbon by way of soil regeneration. Mm. And it's kind of a meditation on the existential crisis that we face. And it's very hopeful in the solution that it offers, which is this pivot from um, these this sort of uh, CAFO slash industrialized farming um, system that we've created and pivoting to a regenerative um, way of relating to the land. Right, because sustainable they, they, they point out that we're having a huge soil erosion problem where um, everything- Two thirds of the world is desertified and yeah. this is increasing. And it's and it all started with hum, human-based ag agriculture and they link it to all these failed civilizations and they link desertification to that. And the idea being that you can be regenerative, regenerative instead of extractive and mm -hmm. still, and still, and actually, help farmers, it actually will be a boon to farmers. So, right. um, so that's, and that's how, a big that's piece of it. In. I mean, God yeah. bless that guy whose name I forget, who spends all his time traveling around meeting with farmers. Ray, and, yeah, Ray yeah, Archuleta, explaining to them. Like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like what an amazing human that he's, you know, not only evangelizing um, how important this is, but connecting with these farmers one-on-one -on -one to actually show them that if they do this, um, they can be successful and more profitable. And, and that farmer, and that the example of the farmer, was, right? Um, who is he's out in the Midwest, and he had his entire he was doing oh, tilling. The idea is, you know, well, tilling, no till is a big part, of right? This. So tilling so. is 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 what creates the erosion problem. And the idea is, this guy had was doing that, do, going by the book, by by ninety five percent of the farmers do because only five percent are regenerative. And so he was doing that and he had his crops three years in a row wiped out by hailstorm, hailstorm, and then drought. Mm -hmm. And he was on the brink of bankruptcy. And he used that suffering, that, that crucible to completely reinvent how he was growing food. And he became kind of the poster child of regenerative agriculture in his area. And his anecdotal stuff, I mean, what he's showing on the, what you can see plainly on camera and everything he's saying, it is, it is cool. Yeah, it's super cool. Yeah. And I think the movie does a great job of explaining um, this idea of drawdown and how carbon works, this, this concept of carbon sequestration and how important soil and soil regeneration is in that equation. Right, they take the soil regeneration and they link it to climate change and carbon sequestration, which is uh, real quick is like, plants basically are carbon stores and they can store it in their roots, which then mm -hmm. puts it into the soil. So it takes the CO2 out of the atmosphere, produces oxygen. And so if you 
if you uh, cover your land, if you have cover crops all the time, you never till, um, you can re- retain water better, retain mm-hmm. the soil better, and sequester carbon. Mm-hmm. And so this, it's they position it as not just a good thing for soil and farmers and food, but a good thing for climate change. Mm-hmm. So much of the climate change discussion revolves around reducing our emissions, but that's only a small fraction of the solution because we have all this carbon in our atmosphere. And unless we figure out a way to draw it down, just reducing the amount that we're contributing to it actually isn't solving the problem at right. all. It's, right? it's, like, so, it's like reducing how much you're putting on your credit card when you're 100,000 in credit card debt. <laughs> right, like I'm gonna charge less, but I'm not paying any of it down, Right. you know, is, is the idea. And I think the movie also did a really good job of kind of casing the history of how we got to this point through the Dust Bowl and what happened after that. Mm -hmm. And then the introduction of chemical fertilizers and in particular glyphosate Mm -hmm. and the impact that that has had on the farming community and our food systems at large, which is a subject that I've gone into in depth many times with Zach Bush, probably um, most in depth in our first episode, which was episode 353. If you haven't listened to that, if you watch the movie and you haven't listened to that podcast, um, I think you'll find that quite illuminating and instructive. So lots to love about this, the importance of no-till, the role of regenerating soil in this climate equation, and, and, and some really good education on this existential threat that, that we face, that we really are at a turning point and the stakes are, are very high. And what happens if we don't start living in the solution? Right. The impact of you know, this increasingly dire climate change on not just the environment at large, but on human beings, like 1 billion refugees by 2050. Like, you know, it's it's already starting and yeah. this is very real. And transitioning farms to regenerative principles is like this huge and great thing. And the idea that that they're taking soil education mainstream and packaging it in a very entertaining documentary, I think is something to be celebrated. Totally, and there's even an amoeba sex scene where they play like sex, <laughs> sensual music and you yes. see like little amoebas like getting together. <laughs> oh, right, to, uh, what, was the, what was the song they used for that? Like sexual healing or yeah. something, you know, it was like- It wasn't know, sexual healing. I know, it but it was been. like- <laughs> They couldn't um, get the rights. <laughs> I also liked the case study of the Los Plateau in yes. China and how they restored um, you know, this once amazing part of China that had become desertified yes, and, and now amazing. it's thriving, which is really cool. And that was the example of um, like this huge empire that had fallen because they, they cultivated that place and mm-hmm. then it's it completely desertified. Right. Yeah. Um, I also like that it's sort of a, a RRP roundup Yes. Pun intended. Yes. We got Rylan Inglehart, who's a producer on the film, uh, who's been on the podcast, and he and his family are the ones behind the Cafe Gratitude chain of restaurants. Which is also in the, um, in the Which is movie. in the movie as well. Yeah, yeah. Paul Hawken, of course, um, who we're gonna get into in a little bit more in depth, is really kind of the anchor to this whole movie. Um, his book, Drawdown, which I have right here, which I wanna talk about a little bit more. And, and you know, longtime listeners will, will remember him from the live event that we did in Los Angeles talking about all these issues. And then David Bronner also, who's, who's just I like- I love David He's Bronner. the best. Yeah. He's amazing. Talk about a good he's Twitter a great, follow. Oh my God, I know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and a lot of the philosophy and the kind of backbone of what's discussed in this movie really does echo the work of Zach Bush, who's doing something similar with Farmer's Footprint, which is his nonprofit. Mm. And I should mention that Ryland, you know, in addition to being producer on the film, 
Kiss the Ground is is his nonprofit that is behind the production of this movie okay. as well. Um, it also bears a fair resemblance to the Biggest Little Farm documentary. Did you yeah, see I that? that? No, yeah, you didn't I see, see that. No, I didn't see it. But they, they they have a stand at the farmers market on Wednesday in Santa Monica mm. every day. Like the people behind that farm, right. yeah, Molly and John, who were on the podcast as well, um, and you know having visited that farm, I can attest to what it's like to put your hands and your feet in soil that has been regenerated to such an extent. And the contrast that exists because their farm um, butts up against a similar conventionally farmed plot that mm-hmm. that is you know kind of what you see with that guy you know right. in, in in the movie where he's like this is my land and this yeah. is the, this is the next door neighbor's farm yeah. and you could see the desertification in yeah. the soil um, the ability of this soil to like hold the water and become more resilient in terms of drought like there's there's so much that's amazing about this process of regenerating the there soil is. and to celebrate so overall like I love the movie for that um, and I should say, um, I do, you know, I have a couple issues with the movie that I want to get into in a second. But before I do that, you know, when I when I did the podcast with the Chesters, the biggest little farm people, like I took some heat from mm. the vegan community uh, because this farm, like the farms portrayed in Kiss the Ground, they're, they use they're animals. Yeah. Like, yeah, they're ranchers. There's animal husbandry going on. And some of those animals are sold to slaughter. And as I said in that podcast and in kind of response to the criticism that I got, like my intention in hosting them on the podcast was to celebrate this beautiful movie that they made, but also to focus on soil, you know, and and how important it is that we, you know, get into this idea of drawing down carbon by yes. regenerating our soil, you know, as a something that's set aside from the ethics of animal husbandry in general. And it was also an attempt at intellectual honesty. You know, I think as somebody who's vegan, plant-based, there's an idea in the vegan community that you're living a harm-free life. Mm. And I think that that's, it's a fallacy and it's not intellectually honest. It's an aspiration to live more gently on the planet. Um, But if you're eating an avocado, as John Chester said in our podcast, like, he has to go through extraordinary lengths to keep the gophers from eating right. the avocados, right? And initially before he reached some kind of balance with his ecosystem, he would have to kill gophers in order to protect the avocado tree. Right. So there's harm that's the result of all of the choices that we make. It's just a calibration of your relationship to that harm. So in the case of the gophers and the avocado trees, that harm is more indirect. Like you're not involved in the slaughter of an animal to eat that food, but the idea that it exists outside of any harm whatsoever, I think is something that Wishful is thinking. not true. And I think it's important yeah. to, to be like, it's not a credit to the plant-based or vegan movement to not be intellectually honest about these things. We are aspiring to live more gently. And that's something that I believe in and try to do, but I'm not under any illusion that the choices that I make don't have deleterious implications down the line. I'm just trying to be in a place where those are as reduced as I possibly can make them. That's a great point. And um, also I think we need to resist this idea of being in silos with like minds. And that if we if we are only with this live gently crowd, 
that our life can be better and and you know we're making an impact and 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 all the rest because look our problems are so deep and and varied that we do need to build the bridges to other people doing work that can be beneficial and positive. Right, and, and who are the people that we're slinging arrows at? Right. You know, let's, let's try to celebrate the wins. And yeah. I think the move from you know conventional farming to regenerative farming is of course a step in the right direction. So I'm not in the business of trying to vilify any farmers who are trying to make that switch. I wanna, I wanna be somebody who can champion that move. Now, like I would like to believe that if I was John Chester and running that farm that I would not make the choice to sell my pigs to slaughter, but I'm also not him. And I don't understand the economics of what's required to you know, maintain the financial well-being of such an enterprise. Mm. So I don't wanna stand in judgment of that. And these issues are complex and complicated. So I think we need to focus on the big problems that we're trying to solve. Well, also if you're not tilling, then the pigs are, are actually performing a service on your land to, I think, I mean, that's Yeah, part and of this, is, this is so kind of what we're gonna get into yeah. in a little bit, yeah. it, which is really, you know, the role of these ruminants. I mean, pigs aren't ruminants, but the right. role, it, you know, the role of the ruminants on the land and the extent to which that's necessary in this regenerative process. Yeah. And I think my issue with the movie, and again, I, you know, everybody should see this movie and I love Ryland and I think what these guys are doing are fantastic and I wanna celebrate that. But I think there's a couple things that are overlooked. And, and this idea that regenerative ag is this panacea, that it's a simple solution thesis for solving our climate crisis is not exactly correct. This is much more nuanced and complex. And I don't know whether there's a, uh, a disingenuity to this or a desire to avoid audience division. But basically the movie celebrates this guy, Alan Savory, in a kind of Pollyanna way. And, and for those that, that don't know, Alan Savory did this, he's this African rancher. He did this TED talk that has millions and millions of views. It's very compelling. And his basic thesis is that grazing reverses desertification and climate change. But what it fails to really tackle is that grazing is also the major driver of deforestation and topsoil loss globally. Mm -hmm. There really isn't any credible peer-reviewed science to support Savory's thesis. Um, and it's also not clear on the role or the advantages that these ruminants have on the regenerative process. And there's a school of thought that's supported by science that that idea that ruminants are absolutely necessary to this is, is a little overblown. Um, he's a, he's, by it the certainly way, a, improves a, the soil. A white rancher from Zimbabwe. Right, correct. Yeah, yeah. Certainly these regenerative farms are improving the soil, but actually forests do it better mm. than these farms. And none of this works unless global meat demand is significantly reduced, drastically reduced, some say up to 75%. Anybody who's wanting to shift to holistic grazing and keep producing meat at today's volume at current demands is kind of indirectly advocating for the tearing down of forests in order to make room because there just isn't enough room to do all of this. And this is a long way of saying that there's a bit of greenwashing in this documentary. Um, and this is, a, this is a, a, a subject that my buddy, Simon Hill from the Plant Proof Podcast 
went into into detail with this guy, Nicholas Carter, who's an environmental scientist, mm -hmm. guy's amazing. I think I might reach out to him to get him on the podcast because he's great. Uh, they did a whole podcast on this subject matter that I would encourage everybody um, to check out. Uh, Carter's, uh, like I said, an environmental researcher. He's focused on the scientific links between agriculture and planetary health. He's got a website that's got tons of resources on it called plantbaseddata.org that you should check out. There's also another guy called Dr. Jonathan Foley. He goes by at Global Eco Guy on Twitter, who's a climate and environmental scientist who's been speaking about this issue specifically um, recently. And the problem is that there's this idea that's kind of interlineated throughout the movie, kind of inferred, not quite stated expressly that cows are the solution to the problem. Cows are the solution just, to the climate crisis. Yeah, it's, right. just, it's just not, it's it's a just positive, not true. It could be a positive carbon, it could be carbon positive to have more cows grazing, not in feedlots, not in CAFOs, but grazing open right. land. And I think that that's a fallacy. Right now, 40 to 50% of all land is used for agriculture. Most of that is for animal agriculture, for livestock and for grazing. Only five to 10% of land is used for human crops. And land but is human only- Human crops meaning that a lot of that like land we're, is we're used growing, for feed, right? Yeah, it's yeah, like it's yeah. used for feed, right? Like corn corn um, and soy. And we're deforesting. We're yeah. clearing that land to grow that feed. To so grow feed. the forests are what we should really be focusing on, the forests and the wetlands, which are much more effective at sequestration than grasslands. Um, it also should be pointed out that this whole thesis is about ruminants, but it, chickens and pigs are not mm. ruminants. So like, what are we doing about the chickens and the pigs? Are they grazing wildly? Like, I'm not sure how that plays into this whole equation as well. Well, yeah. So I think that my flyover on this is uh, like one of the problems is, is that there, yes, there's this need to preserve topsoil. Farming regeneratively is a good thing. Um, but it is sensationalistic, like, and and it's high on kind of feel on, on like emotion, but very low on specifics as to the problems being solved by anybody in their movie and the greater problem, which is there's X number of cows that are contributing X amount of methane. Mm -hmm. And here's the desertification. Because if the argument is all these areas around the world have been desertified, if we if we use this philosophy and instead of doing CAFOs, ship cows in all these different parts of the world and create regenerative ranches, then we can replace that meat that is produced, which clearly is not possible. Mm -hmm. um, that would be one thing, but they don't really get into any of that at all. So the specifics are so low that you don't ever get a sense of the problem, let alone the solution. And um, so I think that's the problem. And, and I, I don't know if it's greenwashing because these aren't you know, big companies trying to pretend they're environmental or just sometimes you see this where you're trying to claim too much mm -hmm. and, and the claim is, is greater than the proof you've got. And I think that's probably what's happening. Um, you never get a sense of the problem in any real way. You just get fed kind of like high level, like emotional strings that are getting plucked, mm -hmm. um, but they, they don't And that's good the to the extent that it's getting people excited and active yeah. about solutions. So yes. again, like I wanna be very careful. Like I'm not, I'm not against this movie. I think, you know, regenerative, you know, regenerating the soil is something we should all be excited about it, yes. but let's be intellectually honest about it. Regenerative raised cows live longer than CAFO cows. So they're gonna use more resources. 
They're going to consume more. They're going to require much more land. Like when you see the, the, the Markograd Ranch in Half Moon Bay in the movie, it's massive, right? Mm. But the cattle is nominal. Like it did, they, I don't know how many heads of cattle they have on that ranch, but it didn't seem like that many no. for such a massive plot of land. So this is what we're talking about. Most of the um, grazed grass-fed cattle uh, still, those farmers still feed them feed for the last hundred days to like fatten them up. Right. Not all of them, but some of them do. Also, when they're eating grass, they're eating a more fibrous diet. And that means they're producing more methane, mm. four times as much methane. And you just, the truth is you can't feed the world this way with current meat demand. Um, but meanwhile, we've cut down 45% of all the trees. Like we should be talking also about reforestation. So what you eat and how much you eat is actually more impactful than, than where it comes from. Because the other argument is like, well, if you're a vegan or vegetarian, you're eating these monocropped foods, the soy and the grains and the things like that, or soy that's imported from somewhere else. But actually there's studies that have run the math on this, this and it basically indicates that imported soy is still less problematic than the grass-fed beef that's grown like down the road from you. Less problematic. Yeah, environmentally, environmentally. Mm -hmm. So there isn't enough land if we wanna to continue to eat animal products at the level that we do today, the livestock sector is gonna to continue to be very significant in terms of the greenhouse gas emissions that, that, that are emitted. Yeah, I think my big alarm bell went off in terms of just like glossing over something in the film was uh, the claim of biodiversity. Because the idea is that monocrop farms are not diverse, but uh, but regenerative farms are very biodiverse. There's multiple crops. There's mul there's animals. There's insects and and uh, bacteria and mycorrhizal fungi and everything mm -hmm. happening in the soil, which is positive, which is true. But that's not when I think of biodiversity. That's I don't think of human engineered biodiversity. I think of actual biodiversity, like like in a kelp forest underwater or in a rainforest in, in, uh, or a cloud forest or in, even in a desert because they kind of vilify deserts and then they show Joshua tree, which is actually an intact ecosystem. So, you know, like there right now, the UN is calling for um, 30 by 30. It's a campaign called 30 by 30, which is 30% of all land in all oceans preserved, preserved completely, from, from human activity by 2030. That's what it's going to take to help combat the effects of climate change. And they wanna go to 50 by 50 by 2050. So it's this idea that the less we interact with a specific area, actually the better off yeah. earth is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's getting to your point in that, you know, that there's, there's a very human centric element to this as if we can solve a problem that we've already caused. And I rebel against that because um, first of all, we're, when we stop hunting for a certain thing or stop growing a certain thing or stop monkeying with a certain forest, it pops back. That's just how nature is. That's the idea with no till. When you stop tilling, your farm becomes just by nature, your soil becomes uh, more biodiverse in mm -hmm. the soil. But that's not to me what biodiversity really means. That's not what the UN is calling biodiversity. Um, that's, that is more biodiverse than a monocrop desertifying farm, but it's not biodiversity writ large. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that's, that, that the, yeah, that's I mean, the kind of stuff that- Savory would probably say that 
he's giving the land a head start by trying to, you know, create that biodiversity by planting the cover crops and all the different kinds of grasses. Like he's trying to create an environment where that can be more like what it would be like if we were leaving it alone, yet also be a place that we could use to harvest food to feed humans. Right, but you could also accomplish it. There's people trying to rewild buffalo because like instead of using cows, you could try to rewild wolves and buffalo. And there are people Mm -hmm. doing that. You know, wolves have been rewilded in Yellowstone and other places. And buffalo, there are people trying to get buffalo rewilded that that can go from Canada to Mexico. Again, through this area that used to be full of bison and uh, that the bison were wiped out as a part of a campaign to not only trap and get the fur, but also to uh, destroy indigenous cultures and and commit genocide uh, post-Civil War and the Western expansion, pre and post, I would guess. Um, and, And so you could also rewild you know, there's other solutions that can still use some of the same thing they're talking about, grazing big animals over large par- pieces of land, planting the right grasses. Because it also matters what you're planting. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if, you're, if you're managing a big farm, you're not necessarily planting native grasses. You're planting grasses that are gonna be benefit for, for your you know, animal or for your crop. Right. So not everything is created equal. Not every plant is this, like an indigenous grass is, is, is what you need in a certain area. Not if you're trying to create real biodiversity, not just a grass that can be eaten by your cow. Now I'm, I'm, I'm picking, I'm being, I'm being picky, but that's, that's the problem I had, this claim of biodiversity, because it's not explained that well in the film. Mm, yeah. yeah. Back to Paul Hawken who again yeah. is like an anchor in here. He's the guy who's been boots on the ground studying this stuff for a very long time. Um, his book, Drawdown, which everybody should get. I have a copy here, which basically- Phenomenal. You know, chronicles uh, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. Not reduce it, reverse it, mm-hmm. right? And so it goes kind of subject by subject through all these different methodologies, modalities to draw down carbon. Number four out of all of them is a plant-rich diet. And the movie does do a section on this. Yeah. And that's where you see Ryland and you see David Bronner. Like these guys are vegans, you yeah. know what I mean? But they don't really make the point, which I wish they would have made, which is that if we really wanna be in the solution here, we have to move towards not just a plant-rich diet, like ultimately a plant-based diet or a mostly plant-based diet. We have to reduce our reliance on meat. That's a Mm. huge part of this. Plant-rich diet and drawdown, um, if we can make that pivot, that would be responsible for 66 gigatons of carbon as pointed out in the book. Um, Regenerative ag is number 11 at 23 gigatons. So this is more important by a factor of three in terms of what's gonna move the needle the most. Number five is tropical forests, Mm -hmm. which goes back to reforestation at 61 gigatons. So I think soil regeneration is key and crucial and beautiful and amazing. And if every conventional farmer made this pivot, we would live in a better world than we do today. But it is a piece in a larger puzzle if we really wanna solve this problem. Another good thing about the movie is they did spend time on reducing food waste, yes, which is huge. Which is amazing. And that's something that eludes kind of us. Yeah. We don't talk very much about it. Yeah. Um, Paul and I talked about it in our live event and it's number three in Drawdown. Yeah. Food waste is like such a huge problem. And um, to the extent that we can create systems 
to alleviate this because I think if we're just relying on us, like not throwing away our scraps, like it's never gonna work. But no. that case study in San Francisco where there's businesses that incentivize people to make sure that that food ends up in a compostable bin and that bin goes to a certain place where they can process this and create compost, I think is amazing. It's not businesses, it's the government. Right. The government mm-hmm. makes, uh, my, my sister lives in the Bay Area and they have it in all, it's, it's kind of, grown from San Francisco across the Bay Area and you get fined for putting- Right, so Newsom get, makes that point. Yeah, yeah like you, you, you don't, you, you only pay, you pay when you screw up, right? Yeah, you Is that pay. how it works? Yes, so you pay a fine if your compostable uh, food waste ends up in the trash mm. or in the recycle bin. Right. And so, and you get, a, you get, a, you get money back, you pay less uh, if you don't have that much in your uh, black uh, trash bin and the trash bins are tiny. They're right. really slender things. Right. They're like you. It's back like when you go to Europe. You go to Europe. <laughs> you go to Europe, and the trash bins are all tiny. Yes. You know that. Yeah. And you're like, how do you live this way? Yeah. And it just makes you realize how in America we're such a refuse-oriented we are, culture. We are just bloated. I know. Bloated, greedy yeah. assholes. You're in a, like an, an apartment <laughs> in you know some city yes. in Europe, and the trash can is literally like you know. Two feet tall yeah. by one foot, or something like that. Yeah, like I throw, for a family of I throw four. more away in <laughs> one day. I know it's terrible. Right? I know. Hey, listen, I'm the guy putting diapers in a in a in a bin right now. Right. Yeah. You're not recycling your diapers. Uh, well, that regenerative re- regenerative diapers. Actually, when I leave here, I'm going to be uh, doing a, a massive diaper clean and hang out. Okay. Like, I, I've got this clothesline; it stretches across San Vicente. It's <laughs> just my child's diapers. Right. Awesome. There's a bunch of studies uh, on all the stuff we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm going to link them up in the show notes. Yeah. Certainly, don't take my word for it. And I'm not a climate scientist. I'm not a scientist, uh, but I think you know it's important that we all kind of. Uh, grapple with these issues and I agree. take responsibility for our own education. In the meantime, again, I'll just say, listen to that podcast with um, Nicholas Carter and Simon Hill, Plant Proof Podcast. Check out Nicholas Carter, t- yep. check out Dr. Jonathan Foley and others. And again, I'll link up those studies. And the tropical forest kind of, uh, and aquaculture is in drawdown, I believe, aqua, expansion mm-hmm. of aquaculture. Oh, yeah, yeah, for Because sure. there's this idea that you can, if you stop taking wild fish stocks and you, and you, and you stop, because there's aqua, you can do aquaculture, just like you can do farming in a regenerative way, you can do aquaculture in a way that's, uh, I know not every, you know, not mm-hmm. to be, I, I am 90, 95% plant-based as an eater, but I'm just saying that one of the solutions to, uh, instead of using large CAFOs and, and people feeding on on red meat and chicken, which is really bad for the climate, mm-hmm. is this idea that if you pump, if people ate more fish and you grew the fish in a way that's sustainable, then you can draw down carbon. That's why it's in, in drawdown. Um, but the idea for tropical forest, 61 gigatons, part of that again, goes back to real biodiversity and what biodiversity does yeah. when you leave a place alone. Right, Yeah. cool. All right, we ready to move on? Ready to move on. What you want to get into? About? You want to get into this? <laughs> you have a hot take on another Netflix doc. I do. My octopus teacher. My octopus teacher. You got to see my octopus teacher. It's friends. great. I love my octopus it, teacher. It, it, this, this is turning into a documentary film review podcast. Yes, the last two times. <laughs> Next time we're not going to watch. I'm not watching any more documentaries <laughs> for at least a month. But this is good because we need, yeah. you know, these water cooler moments. Like these, these are movies that we can all see that are accessible to all of us. Yes, and it gives us and there. I and I love these movies and I like talking about them. 
So if there's another good documentary that comes out next week, (laughs) it's coming up on the podcast. I'm going to get a text. (laughs) Wait, my octopus teacher is basically what we what my friends and I have been doing for it eight is. years at right. Point Doom. Every, so almost every day. you must day. have felt like, oh, this movie was made for me. Well, I, I feel, first of all, my friends are still going out to the reef almost every day and they're sending me images. And mm. I, it's, it is a little bit depressing <laughs> to not be able to go out. But obviously I have, I have bigger things on my plate and I'm holding a, I'm holding a creature you in are. my arms versus swimming And I should say, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but just to interject, when we talk about swimming around the reef, the first time I went and did this with you, I'm used to going out with a group of people and hammering. Right. Like, you know, we're, we're swimming. Like right. we're, this is a workout. And I go out with you and you, you've got a scuba mask on and I'm like, what is happening here? This is not the normal open water swim no. crew that I'm used to. No. And then you're just diving to the bottom and this is like, we're taking our time. And I was like- We're looking at caves. first I'm like, what? I gotta get my swim in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you, yeah. You, 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 had, you have been And back. then finally, after like 30 minutes of this, I was like, okay, I get it. Like, this is just something totally different. <laughs> like, for, you know, forget about your workout. We're here to like smell the roses. So yeah, yeah. It's very smell the yeah. roses. We, and I didn't realize that actually at the time, because until I started going to this uh, hit gym and started doing swim run, I didn't realize how much I wasn't getting in shape with my swims. I used to think yeah. that that was getting me in shape like five times a week, no. that, like getting fit. And it is, it, it, it absolutely- it's zone zero <laughs> is what it is. It is literally zone zero. You cannot get in shape swimming the way we do or the way Craig, Craig Foster does, who is this, um, uh-huh. you know, he's a wildlife photographer that has that that is from South Africa and- the idea is that he's he's having a midlife crisis. Basically, he's having an um, emotional breakdown and he decides to go back to his family's beach house on the cliffs of the most amazing coastline in all of Africa. And uh, and he swims every day and he meets an octopus who teaches him the ropes. But it's, it's very similar to what we do is we go down and we swim in the reef and we see the animals and, and it, it is. And so in that way, it touched me and the angle. And he is a gifted photographer, like his own footage that is kind oh, of yeah, woven it's beautiful. in. It's unbelievable. Um, so that's the kind of basis, but let's hear the hot Right, take. it's a beautiful movie and it does such an elegant job of creating this connectivity with the natural world and the mysteries of the natural mm-hmm. world and how much there is for us to learn. Yeah. Like it's humbling. It's like this beautiful mainline injection of humility. Like we think we know what's going on and in truth we don't. And there's so much beauty and majesty and mystery right in front of us if we would just slow down and take the time to pay attention, you know? And, and that's a big part of what I got out of it. Yeah. Um, and I love it, you know, and I think, well, a couple things. First of all- <laughs> Where's your hot take? I'm getting to it, I'm working up to it. <laughs> I wanna make sure everybody understands that I love this movie first. What a badass Craig Foster is to go in this water without a wetsuit, first oh, yeah. of all, because that, wa- what is it, like nine, nine degrees Celsius? Celsius, so it's so what 50, is that? 50. I mean, that's crazy yeah. cold. 50, and he's 51. out there every day for like a really long time. Yeah, I mean, this is the Southern and nobody. The movie wouldn't be any worse for wear if he's like putting on a wetsuit every no. day. But but he won't he he won't even he's hear a about purist. It. He's a purist. And he won't take a scuba tank. No, so but he has he has his freediving fins and weights. Right. Yep. Right. But he's got to come up for air and he's diving down pretty deep. So yeah. I think it's like twenty five feet, you know. I think that it doesn't look Is that, that much part deeper. of just his trying to be as connected to that world as possible by not like kind of putting on any artifice. 
you know, I don't know. He doesn't really describe it, but if you if you think about it, like he was emotionally like damaged, he was feeling mm-hmm. emotionally fragile, and so he wanted to feel the ocean. I think he explained it as um, when he was tracking animals in um, Botswana. Right, and he was with, or was it Burundi or Botswana? I thought it was. I can't remember, I can't but he remember. was with a tribe in Africa. And they, they were and he, barefoot, right. and they, they were part of the yeah. the, and they were the best trackers he'd ever seen. And he had been doing this long film with them, and he was so taken by them, and he wanted to be a part of the environment. So I think he was inspired by those guys, those right. hunters and trackers, right? And that's why he went with no wetsuit. My hot take is that this movie is really a movie about mental illness. <laughs> it is. This is a guy Not the who clearly was suffering, yeah. right? And we don't really know exactly the cause of his, the root yeah. of his suffering. And we don't know exactly what he was going through because it's only very tangentially alluded to. Yeah. They don't spend a lot of time getting into like the backstory other than to show him making that movie, you know, tracking in Africa. But clearly there's something that he's struggling with and he loses himself. And his this movie is about his journey back to wholeness and the impact of this ecosystem and in particular, this one octopus has on on healing him really. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't help but think like, well, what is, is it depression? Maybe it's manic depression because there is a mania with his obsession once this clicks in with him yeah. where everything else in his world gets pushed away and it's just all about this octopus. And he's coming home and he's putting pictures up on the wall. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, the trope of the, you know, the cop who's hunting the serial killer. <laughs> and you're like, what is going on with this guy? Yes. Well, and he's got a family, he's got a son, he's got a wife at the beginning, although we don't see the wife at the end. So I'm not sure what happens there. You don't think she stuck through it? I, I don't know. I mm. don't know. I don't know if she did. I mean, did, you know, wouldn't, if she was still around, wouldn't she have been part of that conclusion on some Maybe level? She, I don't know. Maybe she didn't want to be a part of it. I don't know. But I'm thinking about the son when he's putting up the pictures on the wall. Yeah. Thinking, what's going on with the son right now when his dad is like, you know, is becoming dad obsessed an with, an with an octopus? octopus? <laughs> you know? I mean, there's an absentee aspect to it, I'm sure. Right. And and that couldn't have been easy for his family. So while he's being healed, I would suspect that, you know, the domestic life was very challenged by this, but it was probably even more challenged by him prior to that when I he would was imagine. suffering even more deeply. Yeah, he probably got to the point where his wife's like, sure, go out, how many, five hours today? Good, you should go, go, go for, for six. six. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I. I see. I didn't take. Uh-huh. I mean, I agree. It was a midlife crisis movie, but um, it's more. It's more of a more, more than a midlife more, crisis. A, a severe, a severe yeah. crisis. Movie. And and you know, he's he's a very interesting character. Clearly, very talented with a camera. I'm unbelievable. And and obsessive. But also and like his, an art, a true artist. Yeah, an artist, like a true artist. But like maybe it, the, he's, the, the pictures he's putting up on the wall are incredible. Right, and the collections he yeah. makes. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah. And basically, he's trying to mimic the tracking that he witnessed in Africa and ply that underwater. Which is incredible. How do you track an octopus underwater? What are the traces that you're looking for? And like the forensics of that alone are insane, right? It is like a weird CSI South Africa (laughs) kind of narrative, you know what I mean? Yeah. The the other way to look at it from the octopus point of view is this octopus was being stalked its entire life. Do you think it was- You, you shake hands here, with one human here, being and you're stalked for the rest of your life. Do you think it was the same octopus? 
That's are you are you a my octopus? I'm truther? just asking the question. <laughs> you just ask the tough questions. I think it was. I, I trust so. Craig Foster's I, obsessiveness. I, 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 I hope so. But at the end of the movie, at the end of the movie, he's not swimming alone. He's got right. a group of people. None of them are allowed to wear wetsuits. Right. Yeah. I'm really glad his son came back into the picture at the yeah. end, and you see yeah. this bond between them, and how this process has ultimately brought them together, and they can yeah. now have this shared experience. I hedge a little bit on the family. It's impossible to know through these movies or any books like what a person's family life is like. Of they might just keep it out just to keep it private. But that's kind of part of the story though. Yeah, you yeah, you would want it to be. And it, it is part of this story, his relationship with his son. And it's not really delved, it's, they, they don't really go into it too much. Mm-hmm. It's like almost the, a little bit the opposite problem with the last movie we talked about where they take on a bunch of issues to the point where they can't get in depth in some ways. Whereas this is so deep into one yeah, place. Yeah, it's very- It doesn't, it doesn't kind of encompass the everything. The focus is very narrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like you're not cutting away to the son sharing his perspective on what his dad's doing. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to hear I know, I kind of wanted that, but I understand why you know they did it the way that they did it. Yeah. And And look, we didn't even talk about what it's really about, which is, he immerses himself in this environment yeah. and by being very patient and showing up day after day, he develops this connection with this octopus. He's observing yeah. it relentlessly yeah. and he ends up learning all about this incredible creature. Um, Which is one of the most intelligent creatures on earth. Yeah, yeah. In, a, in a way that, you know, even other scientists, you know, he's like making discoveries, yeah. like first time discoveries about behavior yeah. that people didn't even realize. And I think, what you get from that is that it goes back to humility. Like we think we're at the top of the food chain, we're the most intelligent animal. Well, intelligence comes in many different forms. We have a certain kind of intelligence that allows us to be very good at certain things. But when you see the intelligence of this creature, you realize like this is an unbelievably smart- Unbelievable. Animal that is so, adept in its environment and so good at survival. It's amazing. Like when it collects all those shells and rolls up into a ball to like disappear or changes colors. Which you might've seen in like thing. Blue Planet before. Right, but, but when but, you actually yeah. see it played out and there's like a whole methodology yeah. to this whole thing and then how it gets comfortable around him and swims yeah, up on a, him beautiful. and attaches to his chest. And it's beautiful. All the way to, you know, I keep saying he, it's a she. Yeah, the octopus um, is a she. And then the mating and then the giving birth and- Very Charlotte's Web at the end. Of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. And um, you know, one thing that Craig Foster makes a really good point is that like people always ask him, why do you go to the same place every day? And they've asked us that same thing. Why are you always going to the same place? Wouldn't it be cooler? Wouldn't you learn more if you went other play, other dive sites? And he said, to learn about the wild, you gotta go back to the same place every day. And I find that to be so profound. It's like it's like it's, it's very I, Zen Buddhist. It's very Zen Buddhist. It's very localist. You know, there, there's a, like an argument of it's very Zen Buddhist in that wherever you go, there you are. You don't have to travel the world to know the world, mm-hmm. right? Right. It would be like going into your backyard and just staring at the same ant hill every day. <laughs> you could all do that. You know. Wait, you have an, a cool ant hill in your backyard? Probably. I wouldn't even know. I don't have a backyard, bro. But. You might have like a spider web or something like have, that. Like have, it's a, the point a being box. like, there's nature everywhere. If you yes. slow down and pay attention. But there's a Wim Hof element of being in cold water sure. and how that shocks you. Yeah. And then just like 
can we give some, just take a moment to pause at the breathtaking beauty and incredible majesty of Africa. Like Africa, you don't even, you think of Africa, like you could think of it in a million different ways. Kinetic cities, incredible music, uh, like colorful and beautiful cultures and traditions, the big five animals, all the incredible animals in East Africa, all the way, the mountain gorillas. And then you see this coastline that's like, Big Sur times ten. Right, it's so <laughs> it's, it's like majestic. Africa and like, is unbelievable. Yeah, I mean those waves yeah. crashing. Oh you're like, God. I can't believe you're going swimming out there. Yeah, he's a badass. It's crazy he didn't get just washed up on the rocks. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. So anyway, props to Africa. I, I want to get out there. I want to go. I want to go. Mm. I want to join the group mm. for a swim. Yeah, I want to get I've out there. Never been to Africa. Mm. All right, my octopus teacher. It's on Netflix, right? Yeah. All right, it's on good. Netflix. Check it out. Let's take a break and we'll be back with uh, a little show and tell and some listener questions. And we're back. All right, show and tell. So this week, a new article came out in the journal Science News Study. It was co-authored by my friend Marcus Erickson at Five Gyres. And Marcus led a study, the the first global estimate of amount of plastic that is actually swirling in the oceans. Mm. And at the time it was in 2015 when when that came out, it was uh, five trillion tons of plastic. Is that when they were saying the the patch was the size of Texas? That's right. And the patch is the size of Texas, but doesn't mean there's like big sheets of plastic swirling around. Most of it looks exactly like this. This was collected by Marcus in Mm. the North Pacific gyre. So explain that for people that are just listening. So we talked about microplastics before. The idea is the plastic ends up in the the waterways and breaks down to plankton-sized particles and it gets nibbled on by fish and that's how it toxifies the food chain, toxifies nature. Um, But these little plastic particles get into, plastic gets into the water and there's five oceanic, main oceanic gyres, current systems. What's that, a gyre? A gyre is like this swirling current. Mm. And it brings- Like a macro current, like it's a, a giant- It's a macro, a giant yeah, yeah, current, yeah. influential current. And the North Pacific has one, the South Pacific has one, North Atlantic, South Atlantic, mm-hmm. and there's one in the Indian Ocean. Those are the main gyres. Right. Um, I'm not sure about the Southern Ocean, but those are the main oceanic gyres that, that uh, five gyres uh, looks at. And so the the plastic get into rivers, get into the ocean, and it just travels. A lot of it travels. It, it, sometimes it'll beach itself. Sometimes it'll just continue to travel into this gyre. It'll just start swirling and kind of the toilet bowl mm-hmm. situation. And it breaks down. And so these are microplastics, these little jars. This is the North Pacific mm-hmm. gyre. Let me see that. Yeah. This so is- So it just, it looks like- like large grain sand, exactly. sort of, that's multicolored. Or pebbles. Yeah. And some of it's really tiny. Here's North Atlantic Gyre. This was collected on the expedition I was on with five gyres and uh, so Jack the, It Johnson looks different based on where, you know, which part of the ocean you get it from, which ocean. Well, it looks the same, yeah. but it's just like, there's less of it in, you know, that that's the Great Pacific Garbage Patch that was, but those were pulled out yeah. of water that was as blue as you could imagine. It didn't look like anything was in it. It looks like right. perfectly clear. And yet you're pulling that because you can't see it. It mm. just looks like little flakes. These are nurdles. Um, it came from a Hong Kong plastic plant. Nurdles are the base element of all plastic. It's just a, a base element that becomes any plastic item, a bottle. So this or, is what all plastics, oh. 
start with, like yep. these little tiny little kernels or nodules that it just looks like sea salt, yep. like large grain sea salt. And like or grains of rice. Mm-hmm. And that's what my, our, when we talked about the Boreo guys on the podcast, the guys that turn right. the pis- yeah, yeah. Uh, fishing nets back into nurdles, uh, that's what they do. Anyway, so uh, I brought that in because there's this new study that estimates there's, ni- in 2016, they looked at it, 19 to 23 million metric tons or 11% of the plastic waste generated globally entered the aquatic system. So one out of every 10 items that you're throwing away that's plastic ends up in the water. Um, And that, if we do nothing, I talked to Marcus on the drive here, I I spent a little time chatting with him and he said that if we do nothing at all, um, that number by 2030 will go to be 80 million metric tons that we throw away. So Um, literally four times what we're currently seeing. Four times. He's, he says that he's uh, authoring a, another study now, an, an updated global estimate, and he says it's 10 times at least what they thought in 2015, which was 5 trillion metric tons. It's going to be at least 10x that in this new study. Um, and basically, he said that uh, this new study that came out in Science this week isn't really about the problem so much as how do you solve the problem? Mm-hmm. And so there's no magic bullet. There's no, there's no magic bullet situation. There's a few things that we can do and we need to work on all of them simultaneously. One is moratorium on plastic production facilities. Uh, the industry is putting billions of dollars into building new plastic plants. You've, you've seen reporting mm-hmm. on it, I'm sure. Um, so that one is a moratorium. The other is bans on single use plastics, things like bottle bans, bag bans, all packaging bans. The EU has all single-use plastic bans that's in place. Uh, Kenya has really strong uh, rules on that is one thing that um, Marcus told me. And with the pandemic, even myself, who I was really good about no plastic, you know, I've been going to the farmer's market and using prepackaged plastic uh, bags worth of you know, tomatoes or whatever the fruit mm-hmm. might be uh, or food because I don't want a bunch of people, you know, feeling up my <laughs> produce and COVIDing on it. Um, but, and he, and I asked that him about that and he said, you know, look, we gotta, we gotta take care of essential workers. We have to take care of ourselves. We have to take care of human beings. So for now, if we're taking a small step back and using plastic, he's not poo-pooing any of that. But long-term, we need to start making this change. And the number one change that needs to be made is something called extended producer responsibility, which means if you are Procter & Gamble and you are packaging something in plastic, you then have to be responsible for disposal of that thing. Mm. As it is now, they just dump a bunch of plastic into the waste system. Cities, our tax money goes towards uh, trying to get rid of it. Right, they're absolved of any responsibility for what happens to it after that. So the proposal is that it's an end-to-end responsibility. It's a closed If you produce it, then you have to be on the hook for how it gets recycled or where it ends up. So then the money goes into, you have to start to R&D, figure out ways to create packaging that can be reused. And us as consumers shouldn't have to expect like a, you know, a shiny thing necessarily. It's the got- problem is that even if it's designed to be reused, most people just throw the shit out. Anyway, right. So then that 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 goes in where the money goes. You have to you have to make inroads to these local plants. There has to be a plan in place for you to ship that back to your facility, wherever that might be. Your distribution. The machinations are so insane. I mean, the title of this science article is "Predicted Growth in Plastic Waste Exceeds Efforts to Mitigate Plastic Pollution." So it's it's sort of like 
the doping situation. Like the dopers are always a step ahead of yeah. the detectors, right? So the plastic production is just ahead of our ability to mitigate it with these machinations. Like we have to go through all of these crazy, you know, processes to try to get a handle on this. Can't we just invent something that disintegrates after a certain right. amount of time? Or you know what I mean? Like there has to be some kind of technological solution that would render plastic obsolete. Like that, I feel like that's the only way that's we're going to get a handle on this that, because otherwise, it's just con, it's con, it's going to continue to spiral out of control. Well, because the companies will never want to invest money into fixing their own right. problem. And there is, you know, like at the, I don't know. Did you watch in Kiss the Ground at the very end, like when the credits are rolling? Did you watch that part? Yeah, I watched where, some uh, of it. So Rosario Dawson's like on Venice on the boardwalk at Venice, that. and she's like interviewing random people. And asking them like, you know, what are you doing about the about climate change? And like, people either stare at her blankly, or they're like, well, I use I use paper straws. You know, it's like that's for a lot of people like that's the one thing that yeah. they're doing. But which is nice. It's not necessarily a greenwashing thing, but it's this idea that when you do this little thing, that's good, but not really having a major impact. It makes you feel like you're part of the solution and it prevents you from actually tackling the real issues here, right? And this issue is so out of control and so beyond uh, you know, the average consumer's ability to get a grasp on it. Like, yeah, okay, I'm not gonna use plastic bags, but, but it, we've been sharing about like not, how hard this but is. But it's not the average consumer's responsibility. Right. So the it's point the is producer's that it, it, responsibility. It's, it's gotta be put on, it, you gotta go upstream. You've got to stop this stuff from coming into the system. That's the only solution. Right. So the only solution is stop manufacturing it, putting a moratorium, creating laws that eliminate it from coming into the system because you can't put it on the person mm. on the boardwalk. It, mm. You can't put it on us. Um, it's gotta be put into the companies uh, themselves. How is it that so much of this stuff ends up in the water? I mean, that just like, goes through the What is the, the chain way. of custody here that-, that I mean, some, it, it spills know. out every time. You know, look, have you ever watched a trash truck drive down the street? Yeah, so but but all right, so we're we're talking about, you know, 20 and then moving towards 80. Yeah. Some of it is um, it, some of it has been um the weight's collected, it spills onto the street, it's it's littered. Some of it has been we ship our plastic waste overseas and who knows what happens and it gets sorted. Um, you know, I don't I don't exactly know if they've if they looked at exactly how that happens, they've just quantified how mm. much does. And what is the impact on marine life? Like when this stuff is in, obviously we know like the fish eat it and it toxifies the fish. Yeah. But do you have a grip on kind of- It feels the, like, well, I mean, Marcus was, was activated on this issue when he took students as a grad student, he took students to the, I think it was Midway Islands to study albatrosses. And he found uh, s scores of dead albatross on the beach yeah. and they, he cut open, he cut them open, they, they, they bisected them right then because Marcus is a mad scientist and he just had his kids do that. And their bellies were filled with this plastic. Mm. And um, so, you know, you can't overstate its impact on wildlife. Yeah. And, um, and we've all seen the images of yeah. these once beautiful, pristine, tropical beaches, yeah. like whether it's in Bali or, right. you know, and they're just littered with, you know, so much plastic refuse. Yeah. It's just, Horrific. Yeah, and and whales that have turned up with bellies full of plastic, right? Especially the lunge feeding whales, right? They're, they're getting it. That's happened as well. Um, so there is a huge impact uh, on wildlife, and 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 in terms of the comp, like stuff that will disintegrate, you know, 
often we we see here in LA, we might get a smoothie or a coffee and something with a plastic that says compostable. Mm-hmm. Those are only compostable in a very specific uh, technology that heats it up to a to a, a various temperature. And most recycling centers that will receive that uh, container will not have that. Yeah, there. I've heard that. And from so it's, other it's kind of well. bullshit. So it yeah. makes you feel like you're doing the right thing, but so little of that actually gets properly you know, composted. That's right. So, you know, not to say don't recycle, but the point is we need to stop the manufacturer. You need to go upstream and we need to stop it. And, um, and that's the way we got to do it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of, there is an analogy to the regenerative soil thing and this idea of, you know, how we're addressing climate change. Like, are we just reducing like how bad we're making it or are we actually reversing it? You know what I mean? So there's like, okay, we got to slow down this plastic consumption thing, but that's not actually reversing it or removing it from our waterways. You can't really remove it. You know, it's already out Isn't there. It, there's that guy, Boy and Slotka, right? Well. Oh, it's, it's not? not? Well. What, what's going on? What's the latest with that? Well, they raised $100 million and they've deployed it. Like and within trolling a within a, boats, within a handful of weeks, it broke down uh, and then they moved it to the Hawaiian Islands and they tried to refix it and redeploy it. And now it's being transitioned into like a river cleanups thing because, you, you know, you can't, it's very hard to put a piece of machinery out in the middle of the ocean and not have it break down. I mean, mm-hmm. salt water corrodes and erodes. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what it does. So uh, I don't think it's going very well from uh, my from That's what a I've bummer. <laughs> Kids, it's, I like that kid. Yeah, magic bullet solutions just don't work really when it comes to this stuff. Um, and I think it is possible. You know, we never would have thought plastic bags would become illegal and they did. So, you know, like it, I think there is, there is a way you got to put it to, it's not consumer based, it's producer based. You mm-hmm. have to ask people to be responsible for their shit, just mm-hmm. like you do your kid. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you if your kid takes something somewhere, don't just leave it on the ground. In a broader context, I feel like as a culture, we've become less and less capable of unifying around solutions that mm. are community oriented. Mm. You know, and and part of this is government responsibility, but we're so fractured right now. Like, can we really come together to solve our biggest problems? Like COVID was this amazing opportunity for us to stop. We're being put in timeout. Let's really take a hard look at some of these systems and the impact that they're having on our planet. And I feel like we're missing that moment that it's passing us by without really taking advantage of what it's being offered. Like in the 70s, when they realized that aerosols were harming the ozone, we were able to like eradicate that and take care of that, right? And yeah, now you know, we're we, having- Yeah, we passed these, a law saying you yeah, can't make like, it. Right, right, stop making it, right? right? same deal. Like, why can't we just, no more plastic bags? Right. No more of it, like- We can, we just don't. We don't do it. Because the and then we have because and then it becomes poli- and then it becomes politicized right. and we argue about it, it's and true. that that's deeply concerning to me. I think that's the bigger issue is like, can we come together to solve our problems? Well, look, look. Here's the deal: like we, especially in the podcast community, where like in 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 the kind of area that you, that you specialize in, and even Joe Rogan, you have these people that come on the David Goggins of the world who say who who are paragons of I took I took care of my sh- I looked at myself in the mirror. I owned my shit, I changed my life, and I became more. And I've become empowered. And we love that. Those mm-hmm. are great stories. And we consume those and we and they became they become our kind of mentors by proxy. 
that we follow either on Instagram or just we read the books or we watch the films or whatever it is and they become who we we want ourselves to be a piece we want a piece of that for ourselves and we don't demand that of people in the public space of corporations we don't demand it somehow those people are exempt you know you, you, they're not they're not supposed to look after their own shit or you look at a guy like Trump if i lose i didn't lose you know, mm-hmm. like the absolute opposite of someone who owns their shit mm-hmm. and is and it has integrity. So mm-hmm. all we're asking is, look, company, no one says don't make money. We're all I, I like making money. Make your money, but look at the at the earth, look at the greater culture, look at the you know, have some responsibility to everybody else. Mm-hmm. That's all we're asking. So can we ask that of a corporation? It's certainly out of the box. I'm not saying it's easy, but I think we should be able to ask it. And we could ask it once. Back in the day, we were asking those questions. Back to the broader issues. I mean, part of the reason why we love those stories of transformation is that it speaks to our innate attraction to this idea of like rugged individualism. Mm. Like I can do it, right? right. It's up to me. And like, and there's something very American about that. Like manifest destiny and yeah. it's about self-interest and the self-made man. And when we see somebody who accomplishes something, we love to kind of celebrate that as an example of what is a very American ideal. I think it's very it's very US centric in that regard, at least the fervor that we have for that kind of story yeah. is very particular. And that's at odds with the Commonwealth, right? Like right. when we have these, existential crises, they require us to come together. And we don't celebrate the community rising up to solve the problem in the way that we celebrate the individual who's able to like overcome obstacles himself. Right. Like, can we apply that, that you know, enthusiasm that we have for those kind of individual stories to a, a common story where like we come that. together as a people to solve a problem and overcome an obstacle? I like that. New way of storytelling. Mm. All right, let's do some listener questions. There's a question that kind of gets into some of this, I think. Ready? Hi, Rich. Hi, Adam. My name's Tristan. I'm calling you from the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coast Salish people in Vancouver, BC. I'm a dual citizen of the US and Canada, and I've lived in both, so I've been comparing and contrasting the two countries for some time now. I've been wondering if there's some cultural root difference that could explain why our value systems are manifested in policy and behavior so differently, almost to the point that Americans appear to champion freedom but reject responsibility when Canadians generally accept freedom and responsibility as two sides to the same coin. I'm thinking, for example, how as Americans, We want the right to bear arms, but not the universal background checks or common sense restrictions. We want the freedom to run a business, but not so much the responsibility of dealing with the waste or byproducts of production. We want to move fast and break things in the tech world, but we don't want to take responsibility for how that affects society. We want the right to vote and are outraged at the thought of foreigners interfering in our elections but we interfere with and overthrow other governments. We want to use a fast lane to pass slower drivers, but we won't move over for others. I'm wondering if you think there's something cultural that is uniquely American 
to account for this. Love the show. Thank you very much. Um, thanks, Tristan. I feel like this could be a whole college course. Mm. Like you could spend a semester on this question. Why Canadians are better than Americans? <laughs> no, not that. Oh, sorry. But certainly, you know, to answer his question, is there a cultural difference? 100% there is. Yeah. Like America, you know, yeah, America. Yeah. Like yeah. that's what this well, is just about, what, right? Just what you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's what we were talking about. What is it, what is it about America and the American sensibility and, um, you know, our, our shared history that leads to, you know, those observations, which I think are astute that, that Tristan made. Mm. And, you know, when you trace it back, to echo what we were just talking about, like our culture is premised on this idea of liberty and baked into that is this sense of self-sufficiency and manifest destiny, this idea that your future rests on your shoulders, mm -hmm. you know, literally don't tread on me, you mm -hmm. know, like don't tread on me, get out of my business, get out of the way. Yeah. We came here from England to escape a certain, you know, certain aspects of, of religious repression and taxation. And we wanted to be left alone to do what we wanted to do. And I think the genetic material of that has been passed on generation after generation after generation. It's so woven into the fabric of our culture. And part of that is what makes us great. You know, it's, it's what makes us different. It's what makes this experiment like so compelling and dynamic, but there's also a part of it that's incredibly dysfunctional and mm. we're seeing that dysfunction metastasize in certain ways right now. It's different right now. Like we were talking about crises used to unite us, yeah. right? Like what happened when we were heading into World War II and all the women had to go into the factories and they converted the automotive factories into, you know, making airplanes and making munitions and all these sorts of things or, you know, the new deal with FDR where, you know, we just marshaled incredible um, reserves to create these programs to lift people up from the bottom. You know, yeah. like all these things. There's so many examples over the history yes. over the history of our country where we were able to you know, unite in times of strain to solve our shared problems for the common good. And now the crises that used to unite us seem to divide us. Mm -hmm. They become partisan. They become acrimonious. They become feeding grounds for you know political talking points and arrows slung. And social media plays a big part on this yes. by really tapping into people's fears, by activating their subconscious in a, in a, in a way that weaponizes ideas and pits us against ourselves. Um, and I think, you know, another aspect of it is this idea that a very American idea of, of zero sum game, right? Like baked into don't tread on me is like, this is mine, yours is there, you can't have what's mine. And if you're winning, then I'm losing. And I think we have a leader at the moment who, you know, <laughs> exemplifies this idea, like nobody else can win except him. There are no, you know, there are there there are winners and there are losers, and we, you know, the idea that we can all win together is not part of that mentality. The zero sum sensibility, uh, and that my responsibility only extends to myself, my needs, and, and that of my family alone. Meanwhile, as we modernize and we specialize, we become more and more alienated from each other. We've lost, you know, our connection with our neighbors. We've experienced this denigration, this 
demise of community as we move towards this cul-de-sac culture where we lock ourselves in our cars and our homes. There's an isolationism uh, that that is at play here that I think you can layer on top of this sense, this false sense of American sort of superiority yeah. and entitlement. Like, yeah, like how dare anybody, you know, mess with our elections while we're doing who knows what in the third world, but that's fine because we're America, right? Right. This idea of American exceptionalism. And that's starting to fracture. It's like there is this unmistakable sense that like we're like Rome in the final days before mm. the collapse. Like these systems don't last forever. No. And <laughs> our system is flawed, highly flawed. Um so and the and and the the way that they were put the systems were put in place also was was kind of pro- obviously flawed and problematic and evil in certain ways and who is treated with fairly by the law and who still is. Right. Um, but, you know, in terms of just going to the core of the question of Canada versus America, what makes it different? And, and I don't, I've never lived in Canada, so it would be hard for me to know, but um, a few things kind of stand out. Uh, two of them are, are kind of policy uh, and one is more media. But uh, I, you know, first of all, we just had this big Supreme Court decision when Obama was still in office that made corporations individuals. Mm-hmm. So, I don't think many countries in the world treat businesses as individuals. They don't give the same rights, the corporations that they're supposed to give to individuals. It's crazy. Corporations are not individuals, they're businesses and they should be held to a different standard. Um, Canada, to my knowledge, does not treat businesses that way. They. They, they're, it's the same thing with Gavin Newsom and what happened with homeowners and, and trying to get them to throw their trash out. Uh, Canada t- gets corporations to throw their trash out a little bit better than we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Manifest Destiny existed there too. I think, um, you know, First Nations, as they're called in, in um, Canada, indigenous people were treated very poorly and were eradicated there too. Um, so that happened. Uh, but in terms of legal uh, legally what's been going on. Corporations have more to answer for than they do in this country. Uh, co- they also have a parliamentary government, um, which means mm-hmm. that if you win a government, if you win, you know, the prime minister is elected through their parties, the parties are elected and the leader of the party becomes the prime minister, as far as I know. And uh, if you win in a parliamentary um, process, if you win by a narrow margin, you are then tasked with creating a coalition government with people who are maybe your political opponents and getting enough people in place to actually support your government. That means that coalition building is is baked into the process. That's the same process England has, the same process Australia has. We don't have that process. I'm not arguing that's a better process, but there is a coalition building, a communal, uh, you know, having to see each other eye to eye and meet mm-hmm. in the middle. Is it, it's it's baked into the way they create their laws in Canada. We don't have that here. It's winner take all here. Um, you know, holding hostage by the power of the Senate or yeah. whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. It's supposed to be. You're supposed to come correct and and meet and compromise, but not. Mm-hmm. But that's not been happening lately. Um, no, I mean, first of all, we're not a democracy. We're a democratic republic. Yeah. There's a difference. Um, I don't think we talk enough about that, like the republic aspect of, yeah. of how our government is structured. But what we've seen in the last several decades is this explosion in executive powers, like this expansion of the executive branch that I think exceeds the you know what the forefathers would have ever predicted. They're supposed to be a very finely tuned balance between the three um, 
the, the three branches of government. And now it's just all about the executive and it's all about the president. So yeah. I think the president has too much power. Meanwhile, with the uh, rights that have been vested in corporations matched by the way that we structure campaign finance, we've created a situation with, in which lobbyists actually hold the most power. They're making all the money and they're the ones who are dictating policy at the highest level by getting politicians to do the bidding of these corporations, which are treated as individuals. And thus we create a system in which the rights of these corporations are paramount to the rights of citizens. And that's led us to this place where we are unable to care for our commons because our priority is making sure that business is growing and that business is thriving. And, and campaign finance laws are different in Canada, and you can see that. And I think there was a Michael Moore documentary. Was it Bowling for Columbine where he, like, crosses the border and, like, starts opening Canadians' doors, and their doors are always unlocked? And he looked at the media, and there wasn't, like, they didn't have cops, and no one was afraid of getting robbed, and they didn't have guns, and their news media actually wasn't all about fear first. It wasn't headline grabby. It was kind of boring. Mm. And uh, And... And so all of those things, I think, was that Bowling for, I forget what I that remember. was. It sounds right. Yeah. But yeah. all right, we answered that question. We Let's did. move on. Thank you. Thanks, Tristan. Thank you, Tristan. All right. Ready? Go. Hey, Rich and Adam. My name is Heidi and I am in the Bay Area. My question or sort of conversation that I'd like to open up is about training and social responsibility. So I train with a large triathlon team in the Bay Area, I've known the people now for nine years plus, and over the years, they've helped me go from 5Ks to multiple IMF finishes, but more importantly, they're my second family. In the beginning of the pandemic, we did socially distant workouts, and then we just quickly transitioned when everything was, you know, hell in a hand basket. Uh, so we would actually just post virtually. Um, and in May, a lot of my team decided to train in person together, just keeping six feet apart. But that's really tricky, right, with the, the wind and everything. And I made the decision not to attend gatherings. Um, I noticed through Strava photos, people weren't wearing masks, they're hugging. So my question is, I've known these people for many years, as I mentioned, deep relationships, and I struggle now with reconciling that and needing that social network with disregard for other people. And it just doesn't seem respectful to me to be out there with no mask now and putting my athletic pursuits through the one. For me, it feels more selfish. So I know this seems like a judgmental question. All right, thank you, Heidi, for your question. This one's tricky. Uh, and I think it's applicable more broadly than her specific question. Yes, yeah, she's talking about her triathlon training group, but this could be- Yeah, but we all deal with this. Yeah, it's like, our, yeah. What, how are we interacting with our friends and our peer group? Or is it cool to go out moment? running? That kind of right, thing. Right, yeah. right. And whether it's meeting at a restaurant or going out running yeah. or cycling or whatever it is, I, I, you know, I think there's, there's a relatable aspect of this yeah. question that extends beyond her specific circumstances. But, you know, I think it's, I think it's tough. And ultimately, all I can say is that you gotta do what's right for you. And you got to stay out of the business of what other people are doing. And I think you said in your question, this seems judgmental, but you're not being judgmental. But I would, I would, I would suggest that perhaps your judgment runs a little bit deeper than you might be aware, because I feel like you are judging everybody else, or at least this particular group. 
And I don't think that that judgment is, is serving you or them. Ultimately, you only have control over your actions and your reactions, not what anyone else is doing. And I understand that that peer group, that social connection with that community is important to you, but if your personal safety and social distancing exceeds that need or that desire for your social outlet, then that has to dictate how you behave, hmm. right? It's tough when you're talking about training outdoors, you know, and, and and I think what makes this complicated is there's a lot of confusion and uncertainty about the disease, how it's transmitted. Is it safe to be outside? It's like, oh, we all wear masks, but then you're, you know, I'm walking down Main Street in Santa Monica and there's restaurants and everyone's sitting outside and they're not wearing masks and I'm walking right by them right. while I'm wearing masks. So it's like, it's it's okay to not wear a mask when you're sitting down at a table, but not when you're walking. Like, right. it's weird. It and so, weird. I don't, you know, it's like, how do you make sense of any of this? You, you don't. You can't and <laughs> no. you don't, right? right? So that's why it all goes back to doing what feels right for you. And also not putting other people in harm's way as a result of your behavior, I think is important as well. So yeah, so do no, first do no harm and yeah. then do and what's And I would right say, you. you know, look, I deal with this as well. Like I like to train alone. So being with a peer group isn't as important as it feels like it is to you with respect to the training. Um, but I do think when you're outside and the wind's blowing and you're somewhat distant from another individual, the chances that you're gonna contract the disease are, are, are pretty limited. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't you know, maintain a safe distance and you know, kind of watch your P's and Q's. But that scenario is very different than going to a bar where the music's loud and people are yelling and they're standing right next to each other and you know the air is not well circulated. Like mm. those are night and day situations. Yes. Although I have been out riding my bike by myself, but I'll ride up behind somebody and they're like, I don't know, 10 meters ahead of me. But when you're riding a bike, like you generate a lot of phlegm, you know? Right. Like you're doing the snot rockets and like you're, and it's like, am I just, even though I'm 10 meters behind, if you're going 15, 20 miles an hour, is that just going right into my nose and my face? I think snot rockets are cool right now. <laughs> I would, but people I would, are I would doing it like, the no when you're rocket. riding your bike, like your nose starts to run, yeah. you gotta do something with that. You yeah. know what I mean? And a lot of that ends up in the air. Like that, <laughs> is that not the aerosolized droplets that we're hearing about? So That's then like I'm like, am I, droplet. is this like worse than me being, you know? It's a good question. And, and I don't know the answer to that. You know what I mean? So. All I can tell you is is that uh, you know you should continue to train, but maybe not do it with this group. If you want to, you know, find a way to do it with one other person, and you can that way you can kind of yeah bubble up regulate the social distancing yeah. a little bit more practically. That might be good. Uh, but I think the broader thing that I want to express is 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 not getting caught up in what other people are doing or not doing because that's going to make you crazy. But it is hard to do that when when the, there is this you you've seen pictures to, of people hugging yeah, and right. it's like, "Well, yeah, on Facebook or what, yeah. you know, yeah. you know, your buddy you you work at a job and you can't yeah. see your colleagues anymore and then right. you see they're going to a bar and you're at home trying to do the right thing or whatever. It's rough. Yeah, some man. people are more committed to bubbling than others. I believe me with with uh, a newborn and then before that pregnant wife, we were super careful. Mm -hmm. Um and uh, you know, I think all you can do is have a mask on you. So that if you're biking or or running, um, we even put them in our wetsuits and put them on for walking back after swimming. Just have it with you. And if you're coming up close on someone, put it up. And if not, run free without the mask. I think that's fine. That's what yeah. I do. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, kudos, Heidi, for 5K to an, going from a 5K to multiple Ironman oh, right. finishers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Absolutely. So, there all right, you have cool. It. Thanks. All right, we'll do one more. All right, cool. Let's go to Toronto. Two from Canada today. I know. Well, you're huge in Canada, bro. Hello, Adam and Rich. My name is Adam. I'm 29 years old and live in Toronto, Canada. I am a big fan of the podcast. Rich, you have been a huge inspiration in my life. I have been eating whole food plant-based for three years now. Recently, I started to train, and I aspire to one day complete an Ironman competition as you did. I have also cured my chronic migraine since I have changed my diet to whole food plant-based. My question is, how do you inspire extended family members and friends to transition to a plant-based diet? This concerns me, especially when I see the health issues they are experiencing. In addition to the impact that food choices have on the environment and animals. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Adam. This question isn't that different from Heidi's question mm. because an aspect of it has to do with trying to convince people to do what you're doing. Mm. You know what I mean? In trying the way to control that, behavior kind yeah, of? Yeah, trying to control the behavior of others yeah. or, or being in judgment of others' behavior. Um, and I get it. Like, I understand the predicament that you're in. You've made this lifestyle change. You had this amazing turnaround. You've cleared your migraines. Uh, and, and that's to be celebrated and amazing. And it I think what amazing. happens when, you're, when, you, when you have an experience like that, you then wanna be a cheerleader. You wanna chant, you're like, why isn't everybody doing this? Like, I need to tell people you about this. You wanna wave this, the flag? Right? Yeah, and then you quickly run up into some brick walls because people don't wanna hear it. They don't want you your know? flag. <laughs> they, don't want your, they don't want your flag, man. <laughs> Go on Reddit. Yeah. Go tell people on 4chan right. about it, right? And family members can be particularly tricky, Yeah. right? And I can just, just tell you, yeah, I can just tell you <laughs> from personal experience, like, I've been plant-based for 14 years at this point. We've got all these cookbooks. I've got this podcast. Like my whole thing is about advocating Absolutely. this. Absolutely. Do you think this has impacted my family in terms of their choices around food? No. If you think so, you would be sorely mistaken <laughs> about that. You've influenced a lot of people, <laughs> yes. but not the ones that love you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because sometimes the ones that love you are the hardest one because they right. know you too well, right? right? So if you wanna be an advocate, that's great, but your audience might have to extend beyond the people that you care most right. about. And that's just the way it goes. My whole way of carrying myself with this is to just be a lighthouse. I'm not in the business of taking other people's inventory. And this is something I learned in recovery. Right. Like clean your own house, man. Make sure your house is clean. Don't worry about what's going on in everybody else's house, clean your own house. Don't take inventory of other people's behavior, which is another way of saying, don't be in judgment of other people. Three years ago, you weren't eating plant-based. If somebody had come up to you then and browbeat you about your dietary choices, how would you receive that? Yeah. You're probably not so good, right? No. So be a lighthouse. And by that, I mean, stand in your power, You know, be an example of this lifestyle, live well, like be awesome. And in doing that, you become a center of gravity that puts out this tractor beam that attracts people who are vibrating on your wavelength to you. And those are the people who are gonna be receptive to what you have to say, because they're gonna petition you. They're gonna come up to you and say, hey, you look great. Like you look different. What are you doing? Right. Will you tell me about that? That's your audience. Those are the people who 
want a little piece of what you have to offer, but trying to roll up on people who haven't expressed you know, that kind of sentiment or aren't demonstrating to you that they're open about it is generally a losing proposition. And it becomes off-putting. Like basically you're creating the opposite of what you're trying to right. sow. Also, I mean, I think that it's so interesting you, you said it, I was thinking that is that what makes you so good at talking about these issues is that the recovery background has like put you in the perfect position to be not ever caring what somebody else is eating. Like that's just never not on your program. It's I, not I, my job right. to be in judgment of what other people are doing. That, and it's not my job thing, to, right? yeah, because, yeah, yeah. And that's something you like I learned early and often yeah. in the rooms. And yeah. I try to carry that into the way that I speak about these other things. Yeah. What's funny is when you get sober, I talk about this with my buddies, like you get sober and then you're like, you think everybody quit drinking and doing drugs just like you did, you know? And then like every, occasionally you find yourself in a situation like at a bar or a party and you're like, people are partying and you're like, people still do this? You know, like <laughs> what is going on? You know, I thought we all quit. Isn't that the deal we made? <laughs> this is over. Right? So that's not dissimilar from when you've had a lifestyle change that has had such a positive impact on you. And then you're like, I can't believe people are still doing X, Y, or Z. like. Didn't we all get over that? Especially people you know, because just the same way that they, that family knows who you were before you changed, you know all their dirty little secrets and know how mm. their eating effect may affect their their physical issues. It, it is a it is fraught, um, mm -hmm. but I, yeah, just the fact that you um, have that background to fall on, God, that helps in so many ways. It's so interesting how the the crosses that we bear and the things that we overcome, you can just call back on in, in so many different fronts in your life. I right. just find that so cool. I mean, one thing you can do, and I would say this to Adam, it's not like you just completely opt out of caring about your friends and your family. You can say like, hey, you know, like this is what's going on with me, but just lowball it. Just be like, you know, I'm, I started eating plants and like my migraines went away. It's, it's about your attachment to the impact of that. Like it's about your relationship to the results. So, you can be like, hey, if you're if you're ever interested, like I'm happy to talk to you about it. Or here's a book that I read I thought was pretty cool. Just as long as you're not walking around with an expectation that that book is gonna get read or whatever you're saying is gonna land with that person. Yeah. So you can make yourself available if and when that person shows, you know, some inclination or interest in what you have to say. Just don't be attached to it. Because mm, it's your you're the one who's gonna suffer. Yeah. If you bring a vegan lasagna to the family potluck and nobody eats it, don't throw it on the ground. No, maybe just make a better vegan lasagna. <laughs> exactly. Like that's the thing Julie does. She'll exactly. just make something that's so good. And people are like, whoa. It, it's not even this like- is vegan? You don't even yeah. have to say it's vegan or right. it's not vegan. Yeah. You just make it awesome and they eat it. Yeah. You know, that's the whole philosophy back to Ryland at the beginning. Like they have a restaurant, in addition to Cafe Gratitude, they have a restaurant called Gracias Madre in West Hollywood. Oh, it's that's a Mexican them too? restaurant. Yeah. Oh, man, I love that restaurant. It's incredible. It's a beautiful restaurant. Phenomenal. The food is insane. Yes. Not once, nowhere on the menu not on the signage, nowhere does it say this is a plant-based restaurant no. or a vegan restaurant. No. And I would suspect a lot of people go and eat there and have no idea. I would think, yeah. Yeah, it's just great. Yeah. And you go there because the food's awesome. Yeah. And that's the way that you win. And the vibe is awesome. It's a great place. Yeah. 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 Do we answer the question? I'm hungry now. All right. 
We let's, answered it. Let's end it. Let's, let's, land, ra- let's, let's wrap land, it. Let's land this plane. <laughs> Somebody sent me a comment. And they said, you should make a t-shirt that, said, that says, let's land this plane. So I always say it on the podcast. Do you ever feel like we landed it, we're on fumes, and it's just like coming in bumpy? <laughs> All the time. All the time. Not this time, though. Last week, we stuck the landing. We stuck it. That yeah. was like a, a, a gymnast on her floor routine. Yeah. It was perfectly we were, executed. Exactly. We that were. might have been our, our peak podcast. That's it? It's all downhill from here? <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> Wait, is this, is this my last day here? <laughs> no, you're fired. <laughs> America. Are well, we done? I think we're done. All right, cool. Thanks for having all right? me. This yeah. was good. I, I always enjoy it. It's fun. It was fun, man. Yeah. I had a good time. I yeah. hope everyone else enjoyed it as well. Yeah. Um, you can follow me on the socials at Rich Roll. You can follow Adam on the socials at Adam Skolnick. Leave us a message if you want your question read, 424-235-4626. You can also drop one in the Facebook group. It's just easier if you leave a message though, then we can organize yeah, we all of this better. Yeah. Um, hit that subscribe button on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. We're gonna have some copious show notes for this episode yes. because we talked about all this research with respect to the movie and all of that. So please um, check that out and you can dive deeper into the science. Hey, yeah, and all, for all the today. listeners that uh, sent you know messages on Instagram after the, the Maya Gabera story kind of finally came out this week. Thank right, it came so out much. late. Like everyone's late. like, what happened? Yeah, it came so, out late. It was held for a week because of the floods. And they didn't want to have like a big wave story while people were, you know, they felt it was insensitive. So they held it a week, (laughs) but the timing just is, you never know how timing The story blew up. It blew up. It was huge. And and, and thank you for listeners who read it and reached out. It was a great article, man. And it traveled. It it was, I think I sent a screen grab. It was like trending on Twitter. A lot of people were reading it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Well, everybody likes a video of a big wave surfer. Yeah. And a badass woman. That's right. Yeah. So we should get her on the podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. She'd be cool. Totally. Um, awesome. So we'll be back in two more weeks with another one of these. I'll uh, be here. Until then, be well. I want to thank everybody who helped put on today's show. Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis for videoing the podcast. Uh, Jessica Miranda for graphics. Allie Rogers for portraits. Georgia Whaley for copywriting. DK David Kahn for advertiser relationships. DK. And theme music, as always, by Tyler Trapper and Harry. Appreciate you guys. Love you. See you back here uh, in a couple days with another awesome episode. Peace. This is BBC Radio 1.